Welcome. I am Laura Anderson, president of Veterinary Career Services. VCS is a recruiting firm for veterinarians, veterinary specialists, and management professionals. We are passionate about helping people achieve their career goals and lead a rewarding life. VCS is hosting this podcast series, Veterinary Specialist Career Insights, to provide insight into the career paths of accomplished veterinarians and learn more about their challenges along the way. These doctors have shared their ups and downs in their careers, the most rewarding aspect of being a veterinary specialist, and they also provide advice for those just starting out. I am extremely grateful to them for speaking with me. Thank you for joining us. Hi, welcome everyone. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Jessica Larson, who is a veterinary medical liaison with Artana Therapeutics. Prior to joining Artana Therapeutics, Dr. Larson was an internist at Coral Springs Animal Hospital in Florida. She did her residency in small animal internal medicine at Michigan State University, as well as a rotating small animal internship. She went to veterinary school at the University of Tennessee. And it seems, Dr. Larson, throughout your career, uh, you've really had an interest in leadership, particularly women's leadership, education, and communication. Would that be a fair statement? Yes, it would. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. Sure, sure. I'm excited. Is it okay if I call you Jessica? Yes, please. Okay. Okay, great. So tell me just a little bit and tell everyone what your role is now. So currently, I am a veterinary medical liaison with Aritana Therapeutics, as you said, uh, which is now actually a part of Elanco. Uh, animal health. And my role is as a professional services veterinarian. So I'm the field services veterinarian who educates other veterinarians and veterinary staff members about uh, new products in the marketplace. So our primary focus is on therapeutics. So um, treatment options. Yeah. For for when uh, dogs and cats are sick. Okay. Got it. And you've been there just about four years. Four years. That's right. Yes. So I made a transition from full-time clinical practice into industry uh, four years ago. Exactly. Great. So as you and I have discussed, um, and as you know, this podcast series is geared toward those veterinary veterinarians and veterinary specialists who are considering a career move, but more specifically on those doctors who are in the third year of their residency Um, and just starting to interview, and also those who have just started their first job after uh, finishing their residency. So I'd like to kind of take a step back in history and go back to when you were a resident and, and get your insight and advice on things that you would have done differently during your third year and as you were preparing to interview and, and interviewing for internist positions. So what are your thoughts for your third year? So as you said, I did my uh, residency at Michigan State University as an academic institution residency, which I loved, Um, was overall very positive and lots of great friends and lots of great energy. Um, But as, you know, most things 
when you look back, you know, possibly there are some things you could have done differently. Uh, And I will say, you know, to me specifically, uh, I had a baby uh, during my residency, which I probably would have waited on that uh, otherwise. Um, But we went forward and she's great. And we had a lot of support, but that, but that changed things. I'll, you know, I'll be honest. And so what that, what that did for me was I missed some of the rotations through some of the other specialty groups. And so I would say to, you know, a third year resident for sure, you know, just make sure that you're, you're ticking all the boxes and making sure that you have as much exposure as possible through the other specialty services and just get, you know, take what you can. I mean, be a, be a good participant, but also learn as much as you can. The other thing I would suggest is really, if you can, to try and uh, arrange like an externship. If your primary focus or goal really is to go into private practice, maybe see what if you can spend some time in a busy private practice. Because that is one thing that I did not do. Although my whole goal during my whole residency was to go into private practice. And so having been, you know, in a primary, well, in an academic institution, but my end game was a private practice, they're they're different, right? They operate differently. And so I would think to, you know, kind of where are you going and then see if you can put yourself in that position for for a time and and make sure that that's a good fit. Mm -hmm. Do you remember how many hospitals that you interviewed with? In those days, which wasn't that long ago, but in those days, there was a lot of phone interviews, of course, and a lot of email exchanges. And so I would say probably between eight to 10 uh, different uh, practices that I initiated contact with. And so that was, you know, it was primarily in the beginning through phone interviews and phone discussions and things and email. Uh, although at the end, I did, in fact, interview with uh, three um, top contenders, I guess, uh, for me as I was finishing my residency. And so I ended up with three total choices. Mm-hmm. So you physically visited three hospitals when you narrowed it down from the phone yes. interviews. Okay, got it. Now, was your decision uh, mainly focused on geographics, the hospital was there one primary factor that was driving you? The um, the the I ended up selecting the practice that I went to first out of my residency, primarily because there was more of a focus or an offering, I guess I should say at that time, of a way to move forward quickly uh, in the practice. And so it was a pretty small practice. So there's one other surgeon. And uh, I would be, I knew I would be the, a solo internist uh, going into it, which as in retrospect, I'll say I probably, I would choose a different path uh, this time. But I think it, it really had to, you know, and to be honest, it had a lot to do with um, the financial offer and the incentives and the idea around production and that sort of thing. And, and that can be very confusing. And if you know, I didn't fully understand it, I'll be honest. And that was a mistake on my end. Uh, so I would definitely, you know, encourage anyone to, to really sit down and understand all the details. Uh, but ultimately, our final decision was made uh, based on um, the practice and the offerings, um, anticipated offerings, and then the, 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 the financial offer. Mm-hmm. So looking back, are there questions that you wished you had asked that you could share with with those who are just interviewing now? 
Yes. I wish I had asked during the interview process or during the time that I was with that practice. Like I said, I I would have tried harder, I guess I should say, to be more specific about some of the numbers and some of the contract details. And again, so like that's kind of one side of it, I guess, is kind of the way I think of it is, is yes, there's a contract negotiation, which certainly you need, like if you're not already an employment lawyer, you need to um, be sure you, you're getting some sound advice, but also um, really to to trust your instincts on on the practice. And I will say, um, you know, it's I would ask very specific questions around, you know, what's a reasonable length of day, like a work day, because you know some folks will say one thing, but you know the reality is you don't leave until 10 p.m. Or um, what are expectations around client interactions, who does some of the uncomfortable conversations, who, you know, attempts to collect payment, uh, if that's not, you know, forthcoming from the client. So it's a, it's a lot around kind of the finances and the contractual, you know, uh, negotiations, but also the practice culture and just looking for, okay, like what's, like what's really going on in this practice, I think. And not to say that all practices are bad. I'm just saying like, you know, to just be trying to be very specific about that when you're when you're looking at a practice, maybe talk to some of the other staff members, um, other doctors, definitely, and ask questions around boundaries and expectations and that sort of thing. And maybe some of the things that you wouldn't get over dinner <laughs> with your um, prospective employer. So literally, what are your hours? What time do you come in and what time do you leave on an average day? Yes. And who handles problems with a difficult client? Uh, Do I handle that? Does a client service team leader handle that or the hospital administrator? Is that what you're kind of getting after? I am in that. and, And not to say that, you know, the doctor, that couldn't be expected of the doctor, but it's all about clear communication and and um, realistic expectations and that everybody's expectations are on the same page, right? So we can have a lot of um, un, uh, unspoken expectations. Uh, and then that's where a lot of the mismatch can come in. And so certainly, uh, you know, very specific questions around those kinds of things. Again, specific questions around the leadership structure. Like if, if I am the doctor and I have a problem, who do I go to and what is, you know, you know, what are potential recourse options? Who, who, you know, if, if that's not working, who else do I go to? And just making sure you understand uh, the leadership structure, making sure that the doctors have an advocate, uh, because I will tell you many times there's not like that. There are nurse managers and technician advocates, client services, as you said, and there's usually a pretty well-defined leadership structure in those two areas, but somehow it's not as well-defined in doctors. And so it's not clear who individual doctors would go to if they had a, had a concern. And so is there a medical director? Is there a you know hospital director? Or is it the owner directly? Uh, you know, and just making sure you understand that structure. Okay. Were there red flags that you didn't know when you were interviewing, but now looking back, 
you say, oh, you know, that that was a red flag. Yes, I do. And I think that the practice that I joined right out of my residency was very small. And as I said, it was there was one other surgeon and uh, he was male, which is fine. <laughs> That's not uh-huh. necessarily the problem. But I but the me- the medical director um, was also a male surgeon. And it was uh, a part of at the time it was part of a it was an outreach for from a university practice. And so the private practice I was in was about three hours away from the university setting. And so they would, you know, have students in and and, uh, come up and rotate through. But the medical director was primarily a faculty at the university and so wasn't present, you know, full time. So he, he would come up every couple of weeks, something like that. And so there was a lot of just not a lot of oversight, I guess I would say, and, and uh, not a lot of support and grooming. And it was especially for, for me as a newly finished resident, which, which again is a huge I mean, that's a huge thing, I think, for a lot of folks to consider, especially women. Are you going into an environment where you are going to be alone, like a solo practitioner, which that alone is tough after you finished a residency with a ton of support and you can walk down the hall and talk to five different people? Um, and, you know, are you one of one or the only woman in that setting, uh, or or man, vice versa, I guess. Uh, you know, and and if you just kind of ask yourself, you know, am I going to be good with this? Not that not that it's bad, but just to kind of recognize those things. So to be honest, those I, in retrospect, would have thought harder about being uh, the only woman in this practice and being a new newly finished resident, a solo practitioner in a market that had not had internal medicine for several years. And so, you know, building the caseload was my responsibility, Uh, marketing, client outreach, those kinds of things. And those weren't things that I had done previously. And there still wasn't a lot of support in terms of like how to do that um, from this particular practice. And so, you know, it's those kinds of things. Yeah. And so as you were making the transition from your residency to your first year, you've mentioned challenges thus far, but what about time management or managing the technicians or billing or um, being all on your own? I mean, I know being a solo practitioner was challenging. Learning how to bill in a private practice versus academia, was that a struggle? Was the communication a struggle? What else was a big change for you? You know, I, I will say, you know, during my residency, we did, we had a ton of great support in terms of client communication and times, you know, that we were given the time that was needed to communicate effectively with clients for the most part and referring veterinarians. And so that, and that's something that was of an interest of mine, you know, so some folks are better communicators than others, uh, but we know that veterinary medicine is really almost all about communication, especially specialty medicine. And so, you know, you, you have to help the pet owner understand where you are to, to gain buy-in and to help their pet. Uh, so going to this private practice, that was different. And as I said, it was in a market that had not had internal medicine previously. And anyway, so there was a lot of different expectations. And so it was a lot of the referring veterinarians getting to know me 
and my style? And do I talk too much? Do I talk too little? <laughs> you know, what am I trying to tell them? Um, but I do remember distinctly a number of really fantastic interactions with referring veterinarians and especially at the um like regional meetings. So there were a number of uh, medical, you know, veterinary medical association meetings and where I would get to interact with veterinarians and they were overwhelmingly positive and really appreciated the level of communication, the level of, um, you know, insight into cases and things and and that we could go back and forth. And so there was a lot of uh, appreciation for that, but it was very different from, uh, from my training and money, you know, money, we would talk about, you know, we would present, generate the estimates and present them to the pet owners in, uh, during my training, during my residency. And certainly, you know, talking about money is uncomfortable at all times. Uh, but I just kind of had to dive into it and say, well, you know, this, this is where we are. And, and these are, you know, the things that I think are necessary for your pet. And, and so we would, you know, work with work with folks on, you know, the, the financial part of it, you know, the pet owner. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a different thing. And then, I, but, but that is what surprised me was in the end, if there was a trouble, if there was any trouble with billing or a pet owner being unhappy and not wanting to pay, then that was solely my responsibility. <laughs> like the technicians would leave me a message you know, like a little piece of paper message that, you know, Mrs. Smith is unhappy and doesn't want to pay her bill. Call her. You know, like, what? Me? Why? <laughs> and so, um, so that's tough. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's important to know who does that. Um, because, it, you know, there's, there's a feeling that if the doctor has to call to ask for the money, then that could undermine the doctor's medical opinion and sort of muddy the waters, you know, and, and I, I would agree with that. And it, just as you mentioned, it has to do with time management and workflow and, and, you know, a number of, so now you've got five phone calls at the end of the day, that are all complaints, or, you know, potentially something like that. So, you know, it's just kind of how do you divide up? Who does that? Mm-hmm. I can see because you're not trained to do that, really. <laughs> in veterinary school uh, or, or during your residency. And you, in your case specifically, were just kind of thrown in, um, sink or swim, it sounds like. Yes, yes. And that was not what I was looking for. And I will freely admit, I mean, I underestimated the, the situation I was going to be in. And that's, I think, one of the, you know, one of the takeaways I would have from, from an experience like that is, is, is I, you know, I think I made a mistake. I mean, this is so helpful for those in their third year um, to hear this, Jessica. So thank you so much, because I'm sure it's going to help them ask more questions and better questions. How would you encourage other veterinarians who are interested in that to, to pursue a type of role, this type of role? In my opinion, it really is all related to communication again. And, uh, you know, being identifying the leadership structure, if possible. For So for one thing, if it, there isn't a clear leadership structure, then I would consider that a red flag. Uh, however, you know, just communicating early that you have an interest in leadership roles, taking on certain projects, aligning yourself with the person who can help you, uh, especially for women in particular, certainly, you know, identifying a mentor. And again, I, you know, I would just like to say, and 
I have to I have to remind myself of this often and that you know there's a difference between being aggressive and being assertive and you know I would just encourage all residents all you know, male or female to certainly be assertive and you're, you're, this is your career in a way that you're going to, um, you know, find a way that you can, can manage it and take control of it. But I would say just in an authentic way, that's comfortable for you to communicate early that that's that leadership and management are some of your goals or some of your interests and be, like be in that role, sort of act the part so that you, you know, it's clear that you are reliable and dependable and technicians, you know, tend to um, identify pretty early who can, uh, who, who's, who they can um, trust and, uh, you know, align with. And that always helps. And so it's just is a matter of, you know, being who you are, but communicating early that that I think is one of your interests. Did you take any courses online or like the Stephen Covey books or did you do anything like that to help you along the way? You know, over the last several years, I really I have um, done a number of different things. I've definitely read a lot of books uh, and attended a number of courses. Uh, The National Veterinary Conferences, I think, over the last couple of years have introduced a lot of really great content that is along leadership and uh communication uh, tracks there. I was actually fortunate enough to participate in an AVMA uh, program that is uh, for future leaders, basically. So it is the future leaders program within the AVMA. And I was a member of that class uh, a couple of years ago. And that was an amazing experience. And it is something that really does teach you, uh, you know, problem solving and communicating with others with different communication styles, how you communicate in a different way, uh, which is a, a, which is very important to both the pet owner and to the referring veterinarian and to the general community because you know everybody receives information a different a different way from one another. And so you as the as the you know the, the talker, right the, um, y- you need to be able to, to understand how to relay that information. So I do think that there have been a number of really helpful um, things that I've done over the last couple of years and in particular um, working with some of the women's veterinary women's leaderships groups and uh, following them and participating in, at the, some of the national conferences and that sort of thing. You mentioned earlier in the podcast that you really did not ask enough questions about the compensation and the benefits when you were accepting your first position. And having said that, and as most uh, veterinarians today do have student debt that they need to to start to repay, any suggestions there as to how to tackle that or what you would have done differently or just any advice for, for folks in that position? Yes. And so, I mean, I will, to be totally honest, I am in my late forties and still have a lot of student debt. I, you know, I'll be honest and I'm worried that I will in fact take student debt into retirement, which is crazy. I mean, it's just, unheard of. Well, it's more common now in, in uh, you know, certain age groups. Um, 
What I would say, again, very similar to contract negotiations is just to be sure that you really, like really, really understand it. Now, especially with some of the uh, younger loans, I would say just, you know, in terms of years in which the year in which that loan was granted, there are, I think, more federal options. Um, So recently, so my husband and I have been working with a financial advisor and you know, in all all aspects of our financial health, but in particular around the student debt. And he did recommend that that I change the payment structure that would ultimately significantly reduce the amount of interest paid over time. Now that makes my monthly payment much higher. Uh, but you know, we are now fortunately in a position to to be able to absorb that. But you know, just thinking back, okay, well, what would I have done differently during my residency? I mean, if you have the ability to make payments during your residency, then, you know, that's one thing I would consider. I mean, I know it's, I know it's really tough. Um, Or if you've got a spouse or partner or something like that, you know, somebody who uh, is able to, to help you. I guess my point is just don't do what I did, which is ignore it for a long time. And, you know, I just kept telling myself, well, I can't afford it anyway. So why understand it better and understand what my options are? And so <clears throat> here we are uh, many years later, still literally paying for it. Uh, and so I would say uh, to, to, you know, seek professional help uh, if you need to, or at least to fully, fully understand it. There are may, way more options, or I'm sorry, way more resources, I meant to say, available now even as a veterinary student and as a resident, as a newly finished professional, I know the AVMA has some resources on student debt. The um, VIN Foundation has a number of resources on student debt. So uh, there's some ways to kind of run out the numbers and, and play it out how it would work best for you. And I have certainly seen a lot of, well, I would say 50% of my clients now are offering ways to help veterinary specialists that are joining them pay down their debt, either if it's a monthly um, payment or if it's part of the bonus when they sign on that's geared toward uh, toward their debt. Um, so I think um, I am seeing a you know little yeah I am seeing a, a change there because it is such an issue um, for, for veterinarians. So. Um, so I guess to kind of recap, if for those just starting out, really understand the finances, the compensation, and then your debt and seek professional advice. I mean, that's a lot of times you don't have to pay for, for professional advice um, in the very beginning. You can just kind of get con, uh, consulting appointments and things like that. And then... Um, would that could develop into something, but um, I, I think that is a great idea, and it's certainly a great idea for another podcast because it's such an issue, um, for, again, for veterinarians. So, I mean, that's exactly right, and you know, it's I kind of fell prey to the to you know you know to this idea of well, I'm a I'm a scientist, you know, I'm a veterinarian, I understand all of that, but I don't understand finances. You know, I was just kind of telling myself that. Well, which is not true, right? I just needed to apply myself. And so, you know, kind of don't let your 
brain trick you into thinking you couldn't understand it because you can. Uh, and just like you said, there's a there's a lot more um, good resources now and even some help from employers. I mean, the, this is fantastic. And these are all things that are, you know, in the last 10 years. I mean, it's, you know, not that long. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I've been uh, recruiting veterinary specialists for over 20, and I've just started to see it, as you said, in the past 10 years, where the compensation packages are um, some of them are including it, and they're much more flexible as well. Um, so, Jessica, to take a step back, when you look at your career, um, what would you have done differently? Yeah, you know, I I have spent some time reflecting, and uh, self assessment I think is is good and and healthy. It can be very tough, but um, but it's good. You know, so like I I intimated, I think I would have gone to a larger. And I, I say sort of warmer, more um, welcoming, I guess, uh, practice, which again is more related to culture and some of those questions that I didn't ask uh, at that time. Now, the other piece, which um, I, I do want to mention, is that I was not board certified when I finished my residency. So this is, uh, you know, as you said earlier, in, in, in small animal internal medicine, and typically by the time residents finish, uh, they then take that last set of exams in June time. Most residencies are finished kind of late June, July, and then generally results are available by the end of July. So it's all pretty quick. So, you know, if you did everything well and pass all your exams and everything, then you would be board certified, you know, um, generally by the time, you know, most folks are starting in August or something like that. But I was not. And that uh, what I want to make clear is that, uh, you know, if someone's listening that is not yet board certified, you are not alone. Uh, And again, this is one of the things that I struggled with quite a bit, just even just personally, emotionally, you know, it's really tough. You spend all this time in school, you spend all this time in your residency, you practice, you know, you study for this exam and then don't pass it. And then you are crushed. And it's, you know, it's something that's professionally really, you know, it's hard to overcome. And what I want people to be comfortable with is just knowing that you are not, you're not the first one and you won't be the last and you're not the only one at, at any given time. So what, uh, how that impacted me though, I think is it did adversely affect my, essentially my level of confidence uh, in going out to interview uh, because there is there's a stigma associated with it, unfortunately. But I want people to to feel confident in themselves. You have all this other training. You can take the exam again. I alone took it four times uh, for internal medicine. And so there are ways to, to continue to uh, work towards board certification. So with that said, I... With all that combination now, these years later, I would have I would have gone to a different practice that would have been more supportive uh, during that my transition period, basically. So those first couple of years are definitely a transition after you've finished your residency and now you're out in practice. So as a new as a new clinician. Uh, and I think again, just more fully understanding the financial aspects of it. Well, what I would have done differently, I guess I would say, is um, identified earlier the the idea that I did do have an interest in leadership and uh, 
you know, veterinary medical communication skills, that sort of thing. And so, and I just unfortunately wasn't in the right practice at the right time. So I was able to, again, just reflect and think about, all right, what I just need to try and take the emotion side out of it for a second and really look at, all right, what, what do, what is it that I want? And I went to the next practice I went to was infinitely better and was, had most of the qualities that I was looking for. So that helped me tremendously. And then that's the practice where I was able to feel enough support and I passed boards and then became board certified while working for that practice. And so that was great. Uh, and they were, you know, very, um, thankful for me as well. And, um, you know, very supportive. And so I think the, that's probably the biggest thing that I would have done differently was, not go to the practice that I went to in the beginning. Um, but it's okay, you know, to, to admit to yourself, all right, well, I would not do that again, but I'm going to learn from that and, and make, you know, make a positive change. And so when you pass boards, how much time did you take off that the last time before you set, set for boards? Were you allowed to take off? I guess is my question. They, I don't remember the details. I'll be totally honest, but they, but it was a very supportive group, and I believe that the last time it was actually four, four weeks that I was able to stay home like full time, uh, and then they, I, I negotiated in like some shortened days, and so I got, you know, I just had fewer cases that day, so I could head out uh, to get home. At that time, I actually had a f- fair fair commute. And so it was kind of a matter of, can I get out and beat traffic and get home and, you know, still have some quality study time, that sort of thing. But that practice was very, um, you know, again, very flexible, very supportive, like understood the value to them and to me of uh, achieving board certification. And so there was not, um, you know, it didn't feel like I was under a ton of pressure or, like they were doing me a favor or anything like that. So, um, I, I, you know, I appreciated that, that feeling, but, but at the last time I was out four weeks before the exam. I've heard various things from different hospitals as to how they work that with, with those folks who are retaking. And I just wanted to get your insight into that. So what has been the most rewarding aspect of your career? You know, I mean, I, I love helping pets and people. I mean, I really do like people and I like to communicate with them and I love it when pets get better, uh, you know, and we're able to diagnose uh, the condition and then they get better. And I mean, I have just a ton of amazing memories of very specific pets or, you know, a specific appointment or a client made a specific comment or sent me a card. I mean, these things are fantastic. And, and I do really, really love that, you know, and I will say I was also part of a group that does home uh, euthanasia. And that too is an aspect that I really, really enjoyed. And that's, that has grown kind of that idea, I guess I should say that concept. There's several different companies uh, and, and private folks, you know, that do that across the country. But I was really privileged to be a part of um, a, a special group for a couple of years. And, and I really do enjoy that aspect of it because it's being able to provide, you know, that pet a very dignified, very loving, very comfortable 
ending uh, in, you know, in their home. And so, you know, it's kind of both ends of it. I don't see a lot of, you know, healthy puppies and kittens, really. Uh, so, you know, generally kind of middle-aged to geriatric uh, pets. Um, but but the idea, you know, the most rewarding aspect really has been being able to help them get better. And, and uh, you know, sounds kind of simple, but that's that's what I like. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why you became a veterinarian, right? <laughs> to help animals. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I kept you a little longer than I had thought, but this information, again, I think will help so many doctors. You know, again, those that are younger and those also in maybe mid-career who are thinking about a change and kind of evaluating, you know, where I am now and taking a step back. And as you said, it's very healthy to, to take a step back and look at, you know, where you've been and can help you look at where you want to go. So self-assessment, I, I agreed. It's healthy. So I think, you know, everything that you've shared and you were so generous um, to share your experience and your insight, and I know a lot of people will appreciate it, um, your honesty and, and your time. Do you have anything else, you advice or anything that you'd like to say to those starting out or, or mid-career? Well, and again, Laura, I, this is a fantastic opportunity. So I'm really glad to, to be able to chat with you. And I think, I mean, the only thing I would say at the end here is, you know, it sounds kind of corny, but but trust yourself and, you know, trust your judgment. And if something doesn't feel quite right, then, you know, don't pursue it. Understand clearly, you know, all of all of the numbers, all of the implications and really pay attention to the some of the intangibles in a in a practice uh, especially you know for folks that are finishing residence as you're going out to interview for the first time or even mid-career you know like I said it's it has been very helpful for me to just every couple of years I just kind of step back and say all right where like how you know where am I going <laughs> where is this taking me and I've been you know I've been at each place you know now long enough to really understand it and then say okay you know is this um, you know is it, is it is it working really and then having the the confidence and the courage to either say no it's not working and I'm going to do something different or you know it is working and I'm I'm good which is fantastic that that would be great. So I think it's just those kind of final words and to, um, you know, just make sure that everybody continues to enjoy inter uh, veterinary medicine, I would say, in, in general. You know, there's it's taken a lot of heat over the last couple of years. And so just make sure that, you know, your your training is has been worth it for you and that you still enjoy it. When I'm interviewing doctors and, you know, culture is the number one priority today for most doctors and on the other side, most hospitals, they want doctors that are going to fit in and be happy. And I always try to ask, and it makes a lot of folks think, what type of environment do you thrive in? I mean, is it like really fast paced or is it a little more laid back? And I really do try to get them to understand and, and they do have to take a step back. And, um, and if you're mid-career, am I happy? Sometimes you're just going through the motions and you're not, you don't realize you're not happy. <laughs> right. That's exactly it. Right. Just kind of step back and reevaluate, you know, just how are things going? Where am I at? Yeah. Yes. I think that's good. Because it, time passes so quickly. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, this has been great, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I'm so happy. I've enjoyed speaking with you about this, and I think we're on you know the same page on so many things, and wanting to help help others, and particularly the younger doctors. And um, it's kind of what life is all about. That's right. <laughs> I know. Try and pay it forward. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. I hope I see you soon. Thanks, Laura. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. I hope that it provided some useful information for you. If I can help you in any way as you are considering a career move, please let me know. I work with veterinary hospitals and academic institutions throughout North America, and I would love to learn more about your career path.